referring back. Make sure I don't make anything up. I just want to say real quick to the kids who are in here with us that are older than four years old, you guys, hi, first of all, you guys are doing a really good job hanging with us this summer. We're about halfway through the summer of no class uh, period, so you guys are doing a great job. I've enjoyed watching the tally marks in my row for every time someone says God or pray or Jesus uh, on your little note sheet. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there's note sheets in the back for kids that would be helpful. One recommendation that I told my girls this afternoon is if you want to cross out, um, I don't know, pray or something today and write money, you'll have a good time. So just if you want to, you can do that. But love having you guys in here. You're doing a great job with us this summer. Um, the end is in, in view. We'll get back to your classes in August. So um, we are open to uh, Matthew 6. We're still working through the Sermon on the Mount here. And um, I want your Bible open. And you can see we just read part of the passage that was preached last week, kind of as a running start into today's passage. And a case could really be made to preach all of 19 through 34 in one sermon. It's, it's, it would work very logically together. But it has seemed good to us to slow it down a little and spend three weeks in a row looking honestly at the issue of money and possessions and greed and security and worry and see if by God's grace he would be pleased to squeeze a few more camels through the eye of a needle. I'm referring, of course, to Jesus' words about it being very difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. I don't usually think of myself as a rich person. But I do believe the statistics that tell me that I'm one of the richest people who's ever lived on this earth. And I have seen enough poverty around the world in my lifetime to know that my financial strains are an insult to much of the world, even today. So my problem, and maybe your problem, is that I have this terrifying ability to live with blind spots and self-deception when it comes to money, wealth, and possessions. And this passage is all about blind spots and self-deception. And you know what the worst part about blind spots and self-deception is? You don't know you've got them. You don't know you've got them. That's why we need God's word. That's why Jesus took the time to teach and explain, and that's why the Holy Spirit has preserved his words for us all the way to 2022 in the U.S. of A., And here we are. So hear this. According to Jesus, having a blind spot in the area of money has the ability to throw your entire life out of whack. So much so that you may actually think you're living your life for God when in fact you're living as an unknowing slave to the powers of darkness. So blind spots and self-deception being what they are, and in, the light, in light of the, the dangers that we in this room may be particularly susceptible to, let's all pay attention to Jesus' words with the strong hunch that there's something that we need to see more clearly today. Are you with me? Well, let's pray to that effect real quick.
Father in heaven, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Your commandment, O Lord, is pure, enlightening the eyes. We need you to give light to our eyes today. Help us by the power of your spirit to see clearly as we unfold your word together. We don't just need a better understanding or good feelings. We need heart transformation. So we ask for light and life, which are ours in Jesus. Amen. Okay, here's where we're going. I'm going to break this passage, uh, 22 through 24 is all we're really looking at. Break it into two summary statements, uh, and then f- we'll, we'll finish with a little bit of personal application. So two summary statements to break down the passage. Summary statement number one is this. Your outlook on money will impact your entire life. Your outlook on money will impact your entire life. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, or that could be translated evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. Maybe that's not exactly what we expected Jesus to say right after talking about where we put our treasures, but he's actually just carrying the same thought a little bit further. So let's try something real quick. You trust me? That was not very assuring. <laughs> Thank you. Henry, trust me. All right, let's, let's try this. Close your eyes for a second. I'm not going to come down and tickle you. Okay, now close, with your eyes closed, try to give a noogie to the person sitting next to you. Okay, if, you, if you're uncomfortable with that, try to keep your eyes closed and try to take the hymnal in front of you and turn to hymn number 112. Keep your eyes closed. Or if you're all kinds of brave, I'm going to give you options here. This is America. Stand up and walk out the back door with your eyes closed. Okay, you can open your eyes. People may, few people took it as their opportunity to leave. I, I, I guess I said you could. So what's the point? The eye is the lamp of your whole body. If your eyes are open and working properly, then your whole body is full of light and you can find the head you want to noogie or the hymn you want to sing or the door you want to exit. If your eyes are closed, then your hand is in the dark, your feet are in the dark, every part of you is in the dark, just groping around, stumbling around in the dark. Your eyes aren't the only part of your body. But when your eyes aren't working right, every other part of your body is affected. Here's the picture that Jesus gives us. When you see and understand your life in this world accurately, according to truth, your whole life will be full of light. And you won't have to grope or stumble around hoping for the best. Or more specifically, in the context of what Jesus is saying here, when your outlook on money and possessions is healthy and sound, your whole life will be on track. But if you're off here, if your outlook is wrong or unhealthy or evil or not in line with truth, then your entire life will be off course. Just as the darkened eye throws the entire body into darkness, 
So a darkened view of money throws the entire life into darkness. Here's a little background information that might help us understand even a little better. Every culture develops their ways of thinking and speaking that carry meaning, which might not be immediately obvious to somebody from a different culture. In Hebrew culture, talking about the state of a person's eye was a way of talking about his or her heart, particularly as it relates to greed or generosity. So, if you have cross-references in your Bible, like I do, you might see that in verse 23, there's a cross-reference that wants to take you to Deuteronomy 15.9. You don't have to turn there. It's going to go up above my head. And there's another cross-reference to Proverbs 28.22. Let's look at those real quick. Deuteronomy 15, we'll start at verse 7 for some context. Um, Moses wrote, If among you, this is God's uh, command to the people, if, if, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. So the phrase there in Deuteronomy that the ESV that I'm reading from translates, your eye will look, your eye look grudgingly, could actually be translated, your eye be evil. So God, way back in the day of Moses, is warning his people against having an evil eye toward the poor. In other words, being stingy or selfish or ungenerous. Proverbs 28, 22, the other place my, uh, cross-reference takes me, says this, a stingy man hates after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. And here, the phrase that in English is translated, a stingy man, in Hebrew actually says, a man whose eye is evil. I don't even know Hebrew. Same thing as me with your cross-references. It's great. You can look smart. So the proverb here means to warn us that a stingy or ungenerous man a man whose eye is evil, who lives simply for his own accumulation of wealth, has his own blind spot, and is actually running hard toward poverty. Now, we could keep following cross-references from cross-references, which I think is a whole lot of fun, and you'd keep finding the same kinds of things going on in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the point that I want us to see is the people who heard Jesus talk about an evil eye and a healthy eye would know that he's talking about whether you're generous or whether you're selfish. So back to Matthew 6, when Jesus says, if your eye is healthy, and one more interesting thing is the word that's translated healthy in a few other places in the New Testament is translated generous. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So Jesus is still talking about where your treasures are, and how that dictates where your heart is at. And as we've just seen with these cross-references, this has everything to do with your view of money and how you use money. If your relationship with money is defined by generosity, your whole body will be filled with light. If your relationship with money is defined by selfishness and greed, your whole body will be full of darkness. Are you tracking with me? Did our Hebrew? Good job, you guys. Okay, so but what does he mean when he says that your whole body is either full of light or darkness? I probably don't need to say too much about that because it's kind of obvious, but just so we're on the same page. When the Bible talks about light and darkness, those are moral categories. 
It's not uh, like light is good sometimes and darkness is good sometimes. Light is used to describe things like life and joy and truth and beauty and clarity and understanding and freedom and goodness. While darkness is usually used to describe things like death and sorrow and lies and deception and blindness and being lost and being enslaved and all that's evil. God's word is said to bring light to a person. It says it gives him or her clear vision and understanding and the ability to know and follow what's true. When Jesus is introduced in the Gospel of John, John says that Jesus, in Jesus was life and that life was the light of men and that his light shined in the darkness and the darkness couldn't overcome it. And this world in the Bible, in the grip of evil, is called by Paul the domain or the kingdom of darkness. While Jesus claimed to come and bring light so that whoever believes in him wouldn't have to walk in darkness anymore. So when Jesus says that your outlook on money has the ability to fill your whole life with either light or darkness, that's a really big deal. Let's tease that out just a little bit. How does a healthy eye or a generous heart impact your entire life? Well, if you cultivate a generous heart, no matter how much money you have, by the way, if you cultivate a generous heart, you're going to be the kind of person who's always on the lookout for the needs of people around you, right? You're going to develop like a scheming mindset, How can I do the most possible good with what God has entrusted to me? And because we saw earlier in Matthew 6 what Jesus said about doing things in secret, you're going to start scheming for ways to give in ways that no one else is going to even see. So that's obviously going to have a major effect on how you use your time so you can become more aware of the needs of people around you and the way you use your money so that you actually have something to give. But it's also going to impact the way you look at the possessions that you already have. How can they be deployed to serve other people? Or are they simply getting in the way of me serving other people? If you cultivate a generous heart, it's going to change the way you look at other people. Assuming that God has been purposeful in who he has put around you and he has orchestrated the proximity of your resources and their needs. It will likely transform your relationships in general, being the kind of person who's convinced that in every relationship it's more blessed to give than to receive. Generous heart's going to change the way you view your job, maybe what you do for work, why you do what you do for work, how you can do it differently to free up more time or more money to be available to those around you. It's going to impact the way you think about your future, what your goals are, how you can set yourself up to be increasingly generous in the future instead of increasingly comfortable and increasingly careless in the future. So a generous heart really is going to impact every part of your life. To use Jesus' language, a healthy eye will, in fact, fill your whole body with light. But on the other hand, if you cultivate an evil eye, an ungenerous, stingy, greedy, selfish heart, that too will impact your entire life. Your whole world 
shrinks down to what you want. How you're going to get it. How you're going to sulk when you don't get it. How you're going to get more of what you already have. How you're going to stress over protecting what you have. How you're going to pout when you lose what you have. And how you're going to spend all your remaining time worrying about not having enough at some imaginary point in the future. The generous life reflects the heart of God, the kingdom of Jesus. The selfish and greedy life reflects the domain of darkness and its ministers of death. And Jesus seems pretty intent on communicating that it's really either one or the other. There's no real middle ground. We'll look at that in just a second. But first, let's not miss something that Jesus says right at the end of verse 23. Here's where the self-deception that I mentioned comes in. Look at that. He says, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If the light in you is darkness, in other words, if you think you're seeing clearly, but you're actually not, how great is that darkness? If you're blind to the point that you're convinced that your greedy, self-indulgent, ungenerous life is actually congruent with life in Jesus' kingdom, then you're in all kinds of bad shape, Jesus says. Now listen, brothers and sisters, as I speak to myself, does anyone need to take those words more seriously than us, than Americans in 2022? This is the part of the passage we have to pay close attention to. What is easier for us living in the wealthiest, greediest, most materialistic culture of all time, what is easier for us than to simply look around at our selfish, greedy, materialistic neighbors and think that just because we're a little less selfish and greedy and materialistic than they are, that we're doing okay? As if our standard is just to be a little less ungenerous than the least generous people in the world. Are we called as disciples of Jesus to simply be a little more generous than the people around us? Is that even generosity at all? Remember Jesus' definition of generosity when he sat back and he watched that poor widow put in her last two coins into the offering and he marveled at her and he said, this woman was generous. She she gave out of her poverty. Everyone else gave out of their abundance. In other words, generosity is, not, is determined not by how much you give, but by how much you have left after you give. This requires some serious soul-searching for a lot of us. How great is our darkness if we mistakenly think we are devoted servants of God when our hearts are actually enslaved to money? Second summary statement. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and money. Compromise is not an option, Jesus says. Notice the ways Jesus has been using opposites in this section of the sermon. So he just made the point that there's two types of treasure, earthly and heavenly. One's temporary and losable. One is eternal and not losable. Your treasure is either one or the other, not both. Then he talks about the healthy eye and the evil eye, the eye that lets in light, the eye that lets in darkness, It's one or the other, not both. Light and darkness don't exist together. And then in case there's any remaining confusion, any lingering hope for some kind of compromise, Jesus puts it as clearly as possible in verse 24. You can't serve two masters. 
You can't serve God and money. You can't serve them both. You can't love them both. No matter how hard you try, you're going to end up hating one and loving the other, being devoted to one and despising the other. Maybe if Jesus was talking to us today, he would contextualize and say, you cannot serve God and money any more than you can be a Bears fan and a Packers fan at the same time. There might be a good part of the year where it feels like everything's going well, balancing those two allegiances, and then two times a year, it all falls apart and you realize it's just not possible. It just doesn't work. Thank you. You have to hate one and love the other. There's no room for compromise. I don't know if he'd say that, but I'm pretty sure he would. Jesus is not giving opinions here. He's stating facts. Facts about life and the world and the human heart. And the fact of the matter is that as a human person, much like yourself, you cannot live for God and for money at the same time. Facts. Any more than you can have your eyes open and closed at the same time. Or that you can be sitting in darkness and sitting in light at the same time. Any more than you can be laying up treasures on earth and treasures in heaven at the same time. It's simply a matter of what's possible and impossible for us. You can't live in the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light at the same time. Dual citizenship is not an option. What fellowship has darkness with light, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6. These are incompatible ways of life. And the reason we can't serve both God and money is because they demand contradictory types of devotion. Serving God calls for a lifestyle of giving and generosity and sacrifice. Serving money calls for a lifestyle of getting and accumulating and protecting. Serving God requires the mindset that everything you have belongs to him. Serving money requires the mindset that everything you have belongs to you. Serving God means you use what he's entrusted to you for the good of those around you. Serving money means you use what you have for the good of you. Serving God means you look to him for your security and significance. Serving money means you look to money for your sense of security and significance. Serving God means you trust him to meet all of your needs. Serving money means you trust in wealth and your ability to make it and maintain it to meet all of your needs. Serving God means you rest in the power that belongs to him and comes to you through your union with Christ. Serving money means you seek the power that money offers and comes to you through your own efforts and craftiness. Serving God means you have your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father, Serving money means you have your mind set on things below where your stuff is piled in garages and basements and storage units. Serving God means your heart is set on heavenly riches that have value in this present life and the life to come. Serving money means you have chained your heart to earthly riches that will rot and rust as you enjoy them for a few short years before they disappear forever. You can't serve God and money. It's not an option. And if you think you can, you're in the dark way more than you realize. I want to make one brief comment here to highlight just one step further the activity of our enemy in this uh, particular battle for your heart. Look at the last word in verse 24. Your translation may say the English word money. 
and then you might have a footnote like I do that says the word mammon, or maybe your English translation, if it's not the ESV, maybe just kept the word mammon altogether. Here's what's going on. When Jesus spoke, he spoke in Aramaic. And when the New Testament writers wrote it down, they translated it into Greek. And when you're translating something from one language to another, what's the only thing you don't really translate? Names, right? You transliterate a name, but you don't translate it. When Matthew got to the word mammon, he didn't translate it into the Greek word for money. He left it at the Aramaic word mammon. This choice by Matthew led some early Christians to think that there's actually a demonic being named mammon who wages war with our souls in the area of wealth and greed. I don't know how much that actually matters, but what does matter is that we recognize, perhaps as Matthew did, that there most certainly is an evil personal scheme at work against us when it comes to our view of wealth and possessions and trust and security. We are most certainly wrestling with powers of darkness that our eyes can't see, but are intent on flooding our entire bodies with their darkness. With that personal scheming of darkness at work against us, armed with lies that are always aimed at the heart of our God, I want to point out very clearly here that Jesus is not calling us to a lesser deprived version of life here. Because that's what the enemy wants us to believe. He's not the killjoy that Satan wants us to think he is. Jesus is not demanding that you live a life of misery in order to somehow merit eternal heavenly happiness. That's not happening here. The invitation that Jesus is making is to a life of freedom. A life of true and lasting joy that doesn't promote panic and worry and the never-ending quest for satisfaction that's always just beyond your reach. He's inviting us to a life of contentment that doesn't demand excess and self-pampering in order to flourish. A life of trusting in the care of our Heavenly Father that frees us up to care for the people around us. The happiest people you'll ever meet are usually the most generous people you'll ever meet. Have you ever noticed that? I have a friend who 10 years ago, when my family lived in Maryland for one year, we were in the pastor's college, there was a guy named Rolando. Some of you may remember Rolando. I've told you stories about him. Rolando was a man from the Dominican Republic, very happy, very big, very lit up the room. And two months after we got to Maryland, my wife Kimberly broke her leg, like broke, broke her leg. And we had four little kids at the time, and I was in this program. And, um, and she broke her leg. And we've just met these people two months ago. We're far away from all of our family here and uh, our church. And the day after Kimberly broke her leg, I show up to class and Rolando walks up to me and he hands me a check. He hands me a check for $1,000. I just met this guy. I look at the check and I'm like, Rolando, brother, that's too much. And Rolando just smiles. He looks at me and goes, brother, I love you too much. And besides, it's not my money. It's not my money. Rolando understood something about what makes for a joyful life, something about what Jesus invited us into as people who are called to be free. So let's, with Rolando uh, as a good example, let's just close with a few minutes here of self-reflection. 
Now, these questions that I'm about to give you, I think, are worth an investment of time between you and the Lord. I think they're worth an investment of time maybe around your dinner table this week. I think they're worth an investment of time in your small group this week. How do you know if you're serving God or money? Here's three questions that I hope at least help us in the direction of clarity towards that ever-important question. How do I know if I'm serving God or money? Here's question number one. Does my life lack light? Does my life lack light? Jesus said, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And we said earlier that light refers to things like life and joy and truth and beauty and clarity and understanding and freedom and goodness. In Jesus is life, and that life is the light of men, John 1 says. So if you aren't experiencing the life that Jesus gives, if your life feels more like drudgery than joy, if your heart is having trouble rejoicing in God's truth, if you feel more disoriented than clear, more in bondage than free, there may be a number of possible reasons for this, but one of them could absolutely have to do with your attitude towards and your use of money. Remember Jesus' parable about the seeds that were scattered among thorns? So they hear the word of God, but in time it gets choked out. By what? By the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. This stuff is at play under the surface of our lives way more than we think. Like I said about Rolando and people like him, they're usually some of the happiest and clear-sighted people that you'll ever meet. That's not a coincidence. So, number one, does my life lack light? Here's another question. Does my life indicate slavery to money? Does my life indicate slavery to money? Your thoughts, think about things like your thoughts your emotions, your fears, your use of time, of course, your use of money, your sense of security, your sense of value, your sense of purpose. Do these things seem to revolve around money and material things? Does your sense of success have to do with your paycheck or your bank account or the kinds of clothes you wear, the kind of car you drive or the kind of house you live in? Do you always need the newest thing? Does my life indicate a slavery to money? That's worth some thought. And I bet with some thought and maybe conversation with friends or family, you could get somewhere with that. Third question. Am I aggressively generous? Am I aggressively generous? By aggressively, I mean always fighting to be more generous than you currently are. Does your giving make a measurable difference in how you're living? Like the generous widow, or do you simply give out of your abundance like everyone else? Are you aware of the needs of those around you and living under the assumption that you're close by so that you can help? Are you fighting to live more simply so that you can give more generously? I think these are the kinds of questions that people like us have to be asking ourselves regularly in order to take Jesus' words seriously. If you need help thinking through opportunities for 
generosity or how or where. Um, you've got lots of, lots of options, but I want you to know that we've got some deacons in this church who are particularly well positioned to know the needs of the body as well as often the needs in our community. Your small groups, the more you talk to people about these kinds of things, the more you'll become aware of things. We have this mission grant opportunity we just talked about where we already give to certain global mission things around the world, but we find ourselves with more money than we thought this year, and we want to be generous in getting it out. And so we've got opportunities even now to, to be praying about where are we going to, where do we collectively as a church get to be more generous. So if you need help you don't know what opportunities are to be aggressively generous. I'm sure you can talk to people and find out. I like this quote that I came across this week by a Bible commentator who was himself seeking to take Jesus' words seriously. He said this. He said, It goes too far to say that one cannot be rich and be a disciple of Jesus. It goes too far to say that. But what never appears in the Gospels are well-to-do followers of Jesus who are not simultaneously generous in almsgiving and in divesting themselves of surplus wealth for the sake of those in need. goes too far to say you can't have a lot of wealth and follow Jesus, but what never shows up in the pages of Scripture are well-to-do people that aren't also really generous. What never appears in the Gospels are well-to-do followers of Jesus who are not simultaneously generous for the sake of those in need. If it never shows up in the Gospels, may it never show up here. How are we doing? Anybody else get a little uncomfortable when Jesus kind of gets up all up in your business like that? But remember his heart. Remember his heart. Jesus said he came to proclaim good news to the poor to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. What if part of the way that Jesus is proclaiming good news to the poor is by proclaiming liberty to captives like us, people who were once enslaved to the God of money, by recovering sight to people who were blind like us, whose entire lives were once filled with darkness by our greed and self-indulgence, so that we then, through our generosity, can proclaim the good news of Jesus, who died so that everyone who comes to him can live. What if that's part of what Jesus is doing now? What if we are the good news to the poor. This is life in Jesus' kingdom. And this is what we conscience, consciously step into day after day as we follow Jesus. This is what we're consciously stepping into every week when we gather and worship and when we close our times by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Jesus isn't calling us in... He's not calling us somewhere that he hasn't already gone. Way back in the days of Moses, when God was about to send to lead his people into the promised land, he said this to his people back in Deuteronomy 6. I think it'll be above my head. He said, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, 
houses full of all things that you did not fill, cisterns you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. And if you know what happened next, God brought his people into the land, and they did exactly what he warned them not to do. They filled their bellies, filled their houses, filled their hearts, forgetting the Lord and going after the gods of the people around them. And sadly, God's people have been doing the same thing ever since. But then Jesus showed up. And though, as the eternal Son of God, he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself taking the form of a servant and tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, Jesus himself faced the temptation to live a life of greed and self-indulgence. Remember that day in the desert when Satan came and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory and said to him, all these I will give to you, Jesus, if you'll fall down and worship me. But our king answered him, Be gone, Satan. And then Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6, what we just read. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In effect, Jesus was saying, In all the ways that my people have failed, down through the generations, darkening their lives with greed, living in selfishness and self-indulgence, serving the God of riches and glory instead of the one true God, I am here to overcome. I am here to walk faithfully and to live righteously so that everyone who's called by my name, though they've chosen darkness and death and slavery, they can have a share in my life and my light and my freedom. And instead of darkening his own eye that day in the desert, Jesus, the light of the world, who though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus was aggressively generous towards us. To the point of death, even death on a cross. If you're serving the Lord's Supper, you can start to make your way up here. That's where we're headed. So as we share the bread, which represents the body of Jesus,